Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Initial impressions matter. I remember years ago when I entered a training program and began to meet my fellow students. Uh, Unbeknownst to me, one of the guys had switched name tags with his roommates, and so I called this guy Mike for many, many days until someone said to me, you know, his name is actually Jared. And then it took a while for me to disassociate that face from the name of Mike. Now, this guy later became one of my best friends and actually became my best man, but what I learned about him in that initial encounter was that he liked to mess with people. That was a first impression that stuck and proved true. Well, when we turn to the New Testament and we consider the public ministry of some of its chief characters, we find a remarkable consistency in their first public messages. What did the main characters of the New Testament emphasize in their ministries, and especially at their very first public proclamations? Does it surprise you to know that it's repentance? We find it with John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 2, where he says, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we find it with Jesus one chapter later in Matthew 4.17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when Jesus sent out his disciples on their first mission to preach in Mark 6.12, we learn, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And Peter, during his first sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2 verse 38, urged the Jews at Jerusalem to repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Paul, in summarizing his ministry for the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, told them, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So it seems fair to say that repentance plays a very important role in the overall message of the New Testament. It's a word that captures the response that gospel preachers were looking for from their audience, including the best gospel preacher of all time, Jesus Christ. In his famous 95 Theses, Martin Luther captures this nicely in his very first thesis, which reads, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. But repentance is one of those words that we tend to both understand and not quite understand at the same time. We know that it involves some concept of turning. We're supposed to turn away from sin and we're supposed to turn to God. And we know it involves sorrow or remorse, our affections. We should feel bad about our sin. But the real problem about repentance, I think, is that we keep on sinning after we've supposedly repented. We wonder, if I've truly repented, shouldn't I stop committing this sin? Well, last week, Peter helped us to see the nature of and the need for repentance. And so today, we're going to tackle this topic from a slightly different angle. We're going to look at Romans 2, 1 to 11, and try to pull out a few principles that may help us to understand what's at stake in our repentance and how repentance is actually meant to work in the Christian life. And here's what I'm praying that we'll see this morning. Here's what I think this text is saying to us. Return to God through Christ so that you can walk secure in his love. 
Repentance is about returning to God. Through Christ, there's a means of repentance. It's not just whatever you think it is. It's through Christ. And the result, the fruit, is that we can walk secure in his love. Repentance is all about what we love. It's about turning from false loves, from idolatrous loves, to the one true God who, who knows and loves us and who invites us into his love. So return to God through Christ so that you can walk secure in his love. And we're going to look at this under two points today. The first is the why of repentance, and the second is the who of repentance. So let's jump right into our first point, the why of repentance. Let's read Romans 2, verses 1 to 11. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Now we've already preached through these verses in our recent series on Romans, so I'm not going to thoroughly work through this passage again. I just want to help us identify a few key principles that arise here in regard to repentance. In the flow of Romans, in Romans 1, Paul made clear the guilt of the Gentiles who rebel against the knowledge of God that's obvious to everyone who lives on the earth. Everyone, without exception, knows that there's a God who creates and who rules and who judges. That's why those three truths in particular are always under attack in the world. The God who creates, rules, and judges. So as he transitions into Romans 2, you might imagine that the Jews who are listening to this, reading this, are cheering Paul on. They're, they're talking about, yeah, those rotten Gentiles. Look at what they do. They're wicked. But then Paul turns the tables on them and he says, you are without excuse. And why is that? Because in condemning others, you condemn yourself. And why is that? Because you do the very same things. Paul's point is simple. We all have a sense of justice. And we all approve of some things and condemn other things. Everyone makes moral judgments in this world without exception. It's part of our being created in the image of God. It's inescapable. It's a design feature of humanity. We make moral judgments. And perhaps surprisingly here in verse 2, Paul says that these judgments that the Jews are making of the Gentiles are largely correct. They're in line with what God says because we know that God's judgment rightly falls on those who practice such things. 
But here's where things go astray. Judgment is our sense of right and wrong turned out on the world. Conscience is our sense of right and wrong turned inward on ourselves. And though we sin ourselves, the innate bent of our sinful hearts is not to humble self-examination, but to self-justification. And that's verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? A humble answer to that question is yes. Yes, I think I'm better than other people. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones captures this well. He wrote, You will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves. We all love ourselves. And we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we will never do it. There is only one way to know that we are sinners. And that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. So the first step in repentance is a true acknowledgement of the problem. And that comes through seeing God. It comes, as Paul tells us one chapter later in Romans 3.20, through the law. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. It's very important that we understand this when it comes to repentance. The law is not some impersonal standard that's just floating out there or somehow in our minds or even in the mind of God. And it's certainly not a program by which we can earn our way to God. The law is personal. It's a manifestation of God. It's a reflection of his character. We will never repent rightly if we don't come to see God in his holiness and perfection. If we don't behold the majesty of the perfect one who created and sustains us and gives us every good thing in this life. If we don't understand that by giving us his law, God is being very kind to us. Because his law is designed for human flourishing. If we obey the law of God, things go better with us. To walk in obedience to our creator is to live life the way that he intended it to be lived. And we know that he is good. He is very good. But there's a problem, isn't there? Because apart from the grace of God at work in my life, I don't want to obey God. I want to obey me. I want to do what I want to do. I want to decide what the standards are by which my righteousness may be appreciated. Not assessed, certainly not judged, just appreciated. I want to feel free to disregard things that I think are inconvenient or stifling or repressive. And we're getting closer here to understanding the heart of repentance. Because if we're going to truly repent, whether it's for the first time or for the thousandth, we must recognize that the standard is outside of us and above us by which we're to be judged. It's not your internal standard. It's not society's standard. It's God's standard. The temptation is for us to look around and to find others who we think are doing worse than us and then to flatter ourselves into thinking that we're better than they are. We're doing okay. But the standard is not just to the left of you. The standard is God himself. Jesus taught this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 48. You therefore, you know this verse, must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect 
So to answer the question posed by our first point here, the why of repentance is because we fall so pitifully short of perfection. And that standard of perfection is God himself. He is perfect. And in his law, he reveals his perfections to us. And he calls us to full and perfect obedience. And not just external obedience, but obedience from the heart. And, and the Apostle Paul talks about, this is, this is a free tangent. <laughs> in Romans 6 the wonder of the transformation that comes in Jesus Christ is that you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That you who have rebelled against God would obey him from the heart is a wonder. It's a gift of his grace. As Paul writes later in Romans 7, 7, it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. The, the law, the perfect standard of God, the reflection of the character of God reveals to us the great poverty of our character, the great willfulness of our rebellion, and the great need that we all stand in, not for a helping hand, not for some kind of curve on the grade, but for complete and utter salvation. Now, I imagine some of you may be concerned. You may be saying, all this talk about the law sure sounds like legalism to me. I know legalism is bad. And there's a popular idea of grace. There's popular teachings on grace that basically equate grace with a lack of standards or rules or law. Jesus has freed us from all this law talk, they say. We're under grace now. But that's a fundamental misunderstanding of grace. Jesus himself said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. And if we're, if we're going to understand grace truly, we have to look to the law, because the law is what helps us to understand what we're being rescued from. Where grace needs to be applied in our lives. Christians who understand grace best are those who have looked longest into the law of God, into the holiness, the perfection, the glory, the beauty of God, and they've found there the face of Christ. They understand that Jesus was a righteous Savior, that the grace of the gospel includes the gift of His righteousness. They understand that the more clearly that they behold Jesus, the more dearly they love him because the more deeply they recognize the great sin that we've been rescued and redeemed from. It's those who reject Christ who also reject his law. They don't want to hear of God's standards because it makes them uncomfortable. That's the suppression that Paul's actually talking about in Romans 1 and the fruits of it are devastating. Paul describes them in Romans 2, verse 5. He says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And then he continues in verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. That ought to terrify us. God will judge each one of us according to our works. He's, he's going to judge us by what we've done, what we've thought, what we've felt, the things people know about and the things you, you, you dearly hope that no one ever finds out about. God will judge us according to our works. If we've gained what Lloyd-Jones called some dim, glimmering conception of God, we know that's not good news. And further, as Paul writes in Romans 8, the law itself, this holy, perfect law, is powerless to save us. The law is good because it manifests the character of God, but it's powerless 
to, to change us. It may restrain outward sin by threat of punishment. You're not going to run the red light because you're afraid you'll get a ticket. Right? And, and it does reveal God's glory and his holy perfection, but it can't produce the forgiveness and the change that we so desperately need. And so the law condemns us. It stands above us and it condemns us. For true salvation and transformation, we must return to God through Christ so we can walk secure in his love. And that brings us to our second point, which is the who of repentance. Romans 2, verses 3 to 5, make clear who needs to repent. Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So every one of us stands in need of repentance because every one of us have a moral standard that at least somewhat conforms to God's law and by which we condemn others, which means we also condemn ourselves because every one of us fail. Every one of us sin. And if we remain hard and impenitent in our hearts, as Paul writes, we are storing up wrath for ourselves. But I skipped a very important verse there, didn't I? Look again at verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? When we consider God's kindness, we might think of creation, right? We're experiencing the beauty and wonder and kindness of God even now. Or we might think of the the many ways that God provides for us and cares for us or, or the blessings that he grants us. But Paul's point here is that God's kindness is seen especially in relation to our sin. So often the great battle in our repentance and the the reason our repentance can be so shallow and ineffective is because we do not consider deeply enough the depths of our sin. And therefore we have this correspondingly shallow view of the greatness of the mercy and love that God offers to us in Jesus Christ. So look at verse 4 again. It speaks of the riches. Did you expect to find that word? Not the tolerance of God. Not not the allowance of God. The riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. God is not stingy in his grace. He's lavish. Those riches are meant to lead us to repentance. So do you think that God is rich towards you in kindness and forbearance, and patience. And please don't move quickly from that question. Consider it for a moment. Is God rich toward you? Is God rich toward me in his kindness and his forbearance and his patience? How we answer that question reveals the depth of our understanding of our sin, and it reveals the the depth of our understanding of the grace and mercy that is ours in Jesus Christ. If Jesus is not glorious to you, it's because your sin is not serious to you. It may be that you're considering these truths for the first time, whether you're a child who's growing up in the church and, and these things are impacting you, or you're someone who just the reality of your sin and God's grace and the Holy Spirit at work convicting you and you're realizing, I have rebelled against God and I deserve His wrath. And so you have some 
dawning awareness of what you deserve from God. And it's not what you thought you deserve from God. And if you're seeing Jesus Christ, if you're seeing your sin for what it is, and seeing Jesus for what, who he is, you're realizing that when he hung on the cross, he was hanging on the cross for all the sins of all of his people. The fullness of the sins of his people. He's, he's reaping the fruits of our labors. He's receiving the penalty that we incurred, that we deserve. He's hanging on the cross, suffering the wrath of God on behalf of those who have spurned him, who've scorned him, who've rejected him, who've despised him, who've seen him as foolishness. And he does that out of his great love for us. God who is rich in mercy and great in love. And so the first two of repentance that I'm highlighting today is those who've never trusted in Jesus Christ. If that's you, he's calling you to to recognize your sin and even more to recognize the riches of the grace and mercy that are being offered to you. He's calling you to trust him, to turn from self-seeking and to turn to him and to know his mercy and his grace, to know love and peace for the very first time. And there's a second who that I think this passage has in view, and that's those who've already trusted in Christ. Perhaps you think that God was rich towards you in kindness and forbearance and patience, and you think when you first came to trust in Jesus that all of your sins were forgiven and you knew peace and joy and rest and and you were so grateful to God and you loved him. But since then, you've continued to sin. In fact, you're you're more painfully aware of your sins because now you're spiritually alive. Things bother you that didn't bother you before. And so you struggle with guilt and condemnation. You think of the gospel as this entry program of grace, but after that, it's, it's up to you. You've, you've got to buckle down. You've got to try harder. You've got to take it more seriously. You need to, to press in and do better. And while our effort is involved in growing in Christ-likeness, the means of our growth never changes. We are saved by grace. And we are sanctified by grace. It is all a gift of God. So if that's you, I want to highlight the third and final who that I think this passage is holding out to us, and that is Jesus himself. He is the real who of repentance. Because in repenting, we're not entering a program. We're coming to a person. We're not receiving this mystical substance called grace. We're being welcomed into the family of God and and into the love and the grace and the adoption that abound in his home. So let's look briefly at two neglected aspects of Jesus' ongoing work on behalf of his people that I think will give us fresh hope for change. First, let's consider Jesus as our intercessor. When Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. That's called his session. He ascended and he sat down. His work of redemption was done. There's nothing left for him to do to redeem his people. He's accomplished it. But he's not just sitting there. Look at Hebrews 7.25. I'll give you a moment to turn there or flick there or whatever you got to do. Hebrews 7.25. where we read, Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost 
to the very end, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus always lives to make intercession for his people. So do you realize, Christian, that Jesus even now is making intercession for you? The flow of the argument in Hebrews 7 is that Jesus is better than earthly priests because they sin and they die. They need a mediator themselves. They need to make offerings for their own sins before they make offerings for the sins of others. But Jesus, as the great high priest in verses 26 and 27, is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. His work is done. It's completed. And so the completed work of Christ results in the ongoing intercession of Christ. As the great 19th century hymn tells us, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. The great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Jesus lives and pleads for me and for you if you've trusted in him. That is his ongoing ministry in the lives of his people. He's our intercessor and his intercession flows out of this reality of justification that he gives to his people. It's a design feature of the gospel. So in justification, we receive the pardon for our sins and we receive the gift of Christ's righteousness. We're counted righteous in Christ. And in Jesus' intercession, the reality of what he accomplished is applied to us even as we struggle, even as we sin, even as we fail in this life. And we find that connection in Romans 8, verses 33 to 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Even now, he's interceding for his people. So if you've trusted in Christ, you have an intercessor who will keep you from all condemnation. Right? You remember Romans 8, 1? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what should we do in response to this amazing kindness where we fail and yet he intercedes for us and he applies his grace in our lives? Do we just say, oh great, I can sin, I don't have to worry about it? No. May it never be, Paul says. No, we, we repent. We, we turn when we sin. We're, we're confident that our Savior loves us. He's even now interceding for us. We repent because we know that when we do so, we're not going to a begrudging God who's clucking his tongue and shaking his head at us. We're going to a God who knows us and who loves us. We are assured when we come to our Savior of receiving his grace and his mercy. We know that God's not hovering over his people in wrath, just waiting for us to slip up. And he's not withdrawing from us in disgust. He's not shocked by our failures. He loves us fully and without fail. He loves us continually and without end. He loves us knowingly and therefore mercifully. God is rich toward his people in kindness and forbearance and patience. That wasn't a one-time thing. That is the current and ongoing experience of every Christian. 
He continually is summoning us to himself and to his grace. He, he knows our frame. He knows our sins better than we do, more than we recognize. And yet he loves us and intercedes for us. He's not waiting for us to clean ourselves up. He's calling us to himself so that we can receive his mercy and grace so that we can put away sin and we can grow to love him more. Christ is our intercessor. Which brings us to the second truth that I want us to consider is that Jesus is our advocate. And we find that in 1 John 2, 1. John writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I find this to be a wonderfully clear-eyed and realistic verse. John's calling the church not to sin, even while he's reminding them that when they do sin, they have an advocate, and he's a righteous advocate. They have someone righteous on their side. When you know that you've done wrong, who do you need on your side? Someone in right standing. Someone whose pleas and intercession and advocacy will be effective. Jesus is a righteous advocate. We're, we're very familiar with a lot of unrighteous advocates, advocating for ungodly things. He's a righteous advocate. He's not, you know, I always think of, uh, oh, what's that, American Idol, right? And, and the initial tryouts. It's like, look, I know your grandma told you you're a good singer, but you're horrible. And she's not helping you, right? Grandma's saying, no, you got to go on the show. You'll be great, right? And then you get mocked on national TV, right? That's not, that's not what Jesus is like. He's not a doting grandma who sees no problem. He's a righteous advocate. He sees fully reality. He deals and engages fully in reality. What he engages for is righteousness itself. You know, there's, there's a paradox here, right? Two things that don't seem to go together, but they, they do actually. He, John's calling us to obey. He's very clear. We've got to obey God. He's, he's telling us that God's people will obey him. It's one of the fruits of the work of the Spirit in our life. He, but then he says, but if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's both. God's people obey him and we sin and we fail. We, we seek to grow in holiness and to love our Lord and we fall short daily and we need his grace and his mercy. And that's why we must repent. That's why Luther said the whole of the Christian life is to be one of repentance. That's why having Jesus as our advocate is so very important. He is for us, not against us. And he's for us on his terms, not ours, which is very good news. So knowing that we have a righteous advocate, what would keep you from repentance? When you sin, and by God's grace you're convicted of your sin, what would keep you from the one who knows you, and who loves you, and who gave himself up for you, and who intercedes for you, and who advocates for you, and who is rich in kindness and forbearance and patience? When we repent, we're not pleading with an enemy. We're going to the Father who knows us and loves us. We're being transformed by the love of the Father in the grace of the Son through the ministry of the Spirit. The Puritans used to say that true repentance is an evangelical or a gospel repentance, not a legal repentance. Legal repentance believes that just recognizing our sin and feeling sorry for it somehow 
earns us God's forgiveness. Legal repentance is trying to work our way back into God's favor. Evangelical repentance, gospel repentance, flows from facing our sins honestly in the light of God's law and not stopping there. Repentance never stops with us. It never stops on this level. It always goes to God. It turns to the God who alone can save us. And one Puritan said it this way. He said, this godly sorrow for sin and this holy abhorrence or hatred for it arise from a spiritual discovery of pardoning mercy with God in Christ and from the exercise of trusting in his mercy. So as we behold the mercy of God in Christ held out to us, and as we trust in him, we inevitably repent. How would you not come to the Savior who knows you and loves you? So here's the truth for all of us, Christians and non-Christians alike. Our only hope for forgiveness, the only path to cleansing is through Jesus Christ. It's not about what you've done, whether you think it's great or horrible. It doesn't matter what you've done. You cannot make yourself right with God. Grace and mercy come to us only and always and at every point of our lives through Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Have you experienced that? I'm going to close here with a quote from John Bunyan's work, Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ, where he helps us to consider the sheer magnitude of this astounding grace that's held out to every one of us and it's available to us in and through Jesus himself. Bunyan's reflecting on Jesus' statement in John 6.37. I'm going to read it from the King James because that's the version that he used. All that the Father giveth to me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. So please listen carefully and consider the the riches of God's welcoming grace and mercy to sinners captured in these words from Bunyan. But I am a great sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a backsliding sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. Return to God through Jesus Christ so you can walk secure in his love. Let's pray. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.